We're in a series and a feature that's called Made and Crafted. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. Um, if you're new to the church, welcome. I mean, we're, we've been uh, going through the book, or the letter, actually, uh, to the Ephesians. And we're now in chapter 5. We've been making our way through this. It's been, I, I believe this has been really good for our church in this season, um, of where we're at. Uh, and it's, the book of Ephesians is about God making, crafting, creating a people for himself in a particular place. And... We, we turn to the second half of Ephesians, where it's really about what Christian living is all about. What does it mean to, to live the Christian life? What is Christian living? And so I'm going to start in verse 3, and I'm going to go to 14. Now, if, it, if, if you are new to this church, um, this text, I'll tell you right now, this text is actually really heavy. It's like a, a pretty dense text, heavy text. I'm going to read it to you, and you're going to be like, wow, what is he going to do with this text? Um and it has a lot of background to it, so we're picking up in the middle of a letter, in, in the middle. So, just so you know that, we're picking up in the middle. But let me read to you chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, and then I'll pray and ask God to uh, give us wisdom and illumination. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, or any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is our text. You can't go anywhere now. You're stuck here. Let's ask God for help. Lord, would you tonight teach us by the power of the word, the scriptures, the Bible. I pray that if we're here this evening and we're like, kind of off-put by this text, that there would be something that happens in the next few minutes where our hearts are strangely warmed and we receive the gift of life that is in Christ. I pray that we would be warned where we need to be warned, rebuked where we need to be rebuked, and God, that you would be comforted where we need to be comforted. Would you help us with this tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So Ephesians breaks up into two fairly easy sections, two halves, if you will. The first half is about who we are in light of what God has done for us in Christ. That's the first half of Ephesians. And the second half of Ephesians is all about Christian living. So hold on to that for a second. Hold on to Christian living, okay? So if you take notes, write that down. Ephesians, the second half is about Christian living. I'm going to come back to Christian living in a second. But first, let me explain these two halves and what they are. The first half of Ephesians starts like this. 
Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy. So all of a sudden we're told who we are, right? Holy, blameless in his sight, in love, we're loved. He predestined us for adoption. We're adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. This is all about who we are and what Christ has done for us. That's the first half of Ephesians. Then the second half starts like this. Verse 1, chapter 4. I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So this, whole, this thing shifts now. In the very beginning, the first three chapters are all about who you are in Christ. That you are the beloved of God. That you have blessings in Christ. They're immeasurable. You're loved in Christ. You're rooted in established love. It goes over and over and over again about who you are and what Christ has done. And it's beautiful. And then it turns. Chapter 4, verse 1. Put that up again. I urge you, therefore. I urge you. Paul's like, I urge you. I insist on this. That you live a life now worthy of the calling you have received. You've been, you've been saved. You, you're blessed. This is who you are. Now live a life worthy of who you are. Now live your life differently. You are new. Live a life worthy. And this is Christian living. So the first half of the letter to the Ephesians is about what Christ has done, who we are. The second half is about how we live in light of who we are. And what this is called is the indicative versus the imperative. These are Greek moods. The indicative mood, the imperative mood. These are very important concepts to understand when you start to read the Bible. Because I think a lot of us think that the Bible is full of just commands, <coughs> telling us what to do. And for us, Western people, especially San Francisco, the most like pioneering, anti-establishment city in, at least in America, we just don't love, we don't like being told what to do. Freedom of choice, we like to choose. So we, we don't like being told what to do. So we go to the Bible and we think the Bible is just full of things that we're supposed to do, commands. But it, is, it does have commands. We talk about them tonight. But every single command of God actually has a movement to it. And it's this indicative imperative. Let, let me show you this, this real quick. An indicative is something that's been indicated or declared about you. An indicative is a truth about who you are. An imperative is something that we are to do. An imperative is a command. Now, imperatives are powerful. We listen to them. They get our attention. Like I might have start, like I started reading and go, there must not even be a hint of sexual morality. And you're like, huh? Like, you, you got to listen to that. You're like, whoa, wait. He's about to, this is going to get serious here. You, or you don't like it. Like, it does something in you. You're like, oh, okay, he's going to tell me what to do, and we're going to fight. Like, mentally, I'm going to be fighting with him the entire time. We, 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 when we listen to imperatives, they're, they're powerful, and they get our attention. Indicatives make us feel good. They often, they often like, if I said, you're loved by God, you're like, oh, yeah. Tell me more. Like, tell me more. You're, love, you're, you're, you're the beloved of God. You're in Christ. You're new. You're like, oh, I just love that. I, but the, the thing is with the, indic, the, the um, indicatives is that they're, they, ha, they have a hard time having practical staying power for us. So I say, you are loved. Like, oh, let's sing a song. But then you leave. You leave church and you leave. And it, and it doesn't like have the, it's really hard to, to do something with that. You're loved. Therefore, what? The real power lies in the combination of both of the indicative and the imperative. Because every single imperative or command in Scripture is based on an indicative, a truth. 
Every single time you're told what to do, it's based on a truth about who you are in Christ. This is the movement of Ephesians. The first half is an indicative. Who are you? You are chosen. You're blessed. You're loved. You're adopted. You're redeemed. That's, that's the stuff that it repeats over and over again in the first three chapters. In the second half, therefore, live like this. See, every single imperative in Scripture is based on an indicative. Every single command. So what, I'm just, what I just read to you now is based on an, something true about you. In other words, we are not told what to do before we are told who we are. And unless you understand and drive the truth of who you are in Christ deep into your heart, you'll never understand the command. You won't have even the power to do the command. You have to know who you are. And so we've spent first a couple months in this book talking about who you are in Christ. So let me say this, because it's already been said so far, but let me say it again. If you are a Christian, you belong to God. He has redeemed you with his precious blood from a life of darkness. And you have been brought into light, and therefore it says you are light. Your body now lives in Christ. Christ now lives in you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your life right now is actually seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You are considered a child of God. You are in the process of God rooting you and establishing you in love. You are a new human the old life with all of its lusts and all of its old passions are gone and God has made you new. What do we call what I just said? What do we call that? Is that an indicative or imperative? Indicative. Great. Well done, class. It's an indicative. That's true. Okay. Now, look at verse 3. It's not on the screen because I think our screen just literally broke. Oh, nah. -uh. Here they go. Okay. Um, look at verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a, a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Okay, keep this up. for Just leave that up there until I, I to ask it to come down. Before we talk about this verse, I want you to see it, because before we talk about it, I want to back up and get the big picture first. Or review. What do we call this? Is this indicative or an imperative? Imperative. imperative. This is, this is it's imper Paul says it is imperative that you live this way. Because what's true about you, because of who you are in Christ, it's imperative. So what this means, what this means here is that Christian living, because I remember I told you to hang on to Christian living. I was like, okay, the second half of Ephesians is about Christian living. And I said, hang on to that idea for a second. Hang on to that phrase, Christian living, because I'm going to come back to it. Now, I'm, I'm back to it now, by the way. Okay? It's, it's back. Here it is. Christian living, if, the, if, if, this, if this is true, Christian living is about a life of obedience to God. Christian living is about a life of obedience to God. Someone write that down. Do something with that. Lock that in your mind. Like you need to hear this. Christian, what Christian life is about now for you, for me, is about a life of obedience. So when Paul moves into, okay, what is the Christian life about? He starts to list off things that we are called to do, ways that we are called to obey God. Christian living is about obedience to God. And it's about obedience to God out of a response to God because God has saved us. We, therefore, begin a life of obedience to him. So today, as, as Tarek was saying, we had baptisms. Here's another picture. Here's the same picture of our baptisms today. All the 20-something people that got baptized today, beautiful. The testimonies that were coming out, so many people started their testimony like this. I am here today because Christ has saved me. And he's called me to walk in obedience to him. And I'm taking a step of obedience by being baptized today. 
And I'm declaring to everyone here that I'm, I'm new in Christ, that my life is Christ's. I mean, so many people said that. And they're, they're able to share their own testimony. We don't, like, script it out for them. Like, hey, say this, extra points in heaven, whatever. That's not what happened. Like, this is, what, this is what they said about, like, this is why I'm here being baptized. It was out of a response to God. This is what Christian obedience is. Christian, obe- Christian life is obedience to God out of, out of a response of what Christ has done for us. Are you with me? So Christ has saved us. He's, he's blessed us. He's redeemed our lives. We were once in darkness, and now we're light in the Lord. We were once dead, and now we're alive. We were once dead to the things of God and the things of, of this, of, of our, even of our, of our like, inner being. And God re- redeemed us. He came inside of us and, and like illuminated our eyes and our heart and our mind. This is the stuff that Christ has done. Now, back to verse 3. But among you. I've done a lot of background to this verse because I, I, I don't want you to miss this. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. You are holy. You are God's. You belong to God. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality in this room. There must not even be a hint of sexual impurity in this room. There must not even be a hint of greed in this room. Not even a hint. I don't like cilantro. It's the worst thing that God ever made. Okay? Just a hint of it in anything, I'm like, it has cilantro in it. This is, the worst. this is gross. Like the best thing. It could be the best thing. It would be the best bowl of pho I've ever eaten. And then they, I say hold a cilantro, but then they don't. And somehow it sneaks its way in there. And I bite into it. I'm like, oh, it's the worst, okay? A hint, I, no, a hint ruins everything. If I gave you a, a meal, I'm like, there's just a, a hint of feces in it. Just a hint. <laughs> but it's good otherwise. Just, but there's just a hint. You would be like, wait, no, I don't want any of that. This is, this is it. This is, we tolerate it, though. We're like, yeah, there are, there's some hints of sexual immorality in this room. But it's just a hint. It's fine. It's not fine. It's, and I just wanted to say it's not okay. It's not okay in my life. It's not okay in your life. The, there's not, the, greed, the, the hints of greed in my life are not okay. The hints of greed in your life are not okay. They are not fitting for God's holy people. You are holy. Sexual immorality is not okay. I know we live in San Francisco. I know it. I know that we live in the most, one of the most sexually progressive cities in the world, and we're, we're Christians. We're like, well, if I'm, if I'm at least thinking that what I'm doing is kind of bad, I'm, I'm okay. No, it's not. It's not. Sexual morality, sexual impurity, and all of its forms is even a, just a hint of it in your life. Even just a hint of it, and, and if there was one person out of a, couple, a few hundred people in here that there was a hint of, it's still not okay. This is not okay for God's people. Why? Because that's not who we are. We were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, it says in 1 Corinthians. Sexual immorality, that word in Greek is porneia. Porneia means any sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what the word means. There must not even be a hint of that. If that wasn't enough, Paul goes further. He says, or or of any kind of impurity, which means participating in any kind of sexual impurity. 
So not just sex outside of marriage. This is any kind of impurity, whether it's pornography, sexual novels, or shows for entertainment. It could be something like sexting. It can be like giving ourselves over to sexual fantasies outside of marriage. All, it's, it's a junk drawer of everything that's, that's wrong sexually. And you're probably thinking, well, this religion is probably not going to do that well in San Francisco. Truth be told, Ephesus was way more sexually progressive than San Francisco. Way more sexually progressive than San Francisco. Well, I wouldn't say way, but it was more sexually progressive than San Francisco. And this is why Paul said to them, I mean, the, the church was alive and well in Ephesus. There were a, a group of people that were living into a new way to be human. And a new way to be sexually human. And Paul said to them, this is why he said to them, you must no longer live like Gentiles do. The thing is that they were Gentiles. It would be like Paul saying to us, you must no longer live as San Franciscans. And you're like, but I'm San Franciscan. I'm, I live here. This is my town. Like, I, I am San Franciscan. Don't live like that anymore. And he was telling Gentiles, don't live like Gentiles. You are new now. This is why he said, Gentiles, don't live like that anymore. He gets on, he now, and then he moves on to greed. Greed is the desire to have more. It's the sin of not being content, the sin of wanting things more than wanting God. And so Paul calls this trifecta deeds of darkness. Look at verse 11. These are deeds of darkness. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And it's a pretty comprehensive list of obedient, disobedience to God. It is sexual misconduct, it's, it's greed, materialism, injustice. Like this is actually a pretty comprehensive list. And, the, and these are deeds. These are things that we do with our bodies, that we do with our minds. These are things that we do. And it's, it's wrong. But not only that, he, he actually goes further. He also calls this trifecta idolatry. So not only does he talk about de- these things as being deeds that we do, he describes them as being motivations of our hearts. Look at verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person. See how he connects the three? Immoral, sexually immoral, impure, impurities, greedy, greed. Like he connects the three. He's he's saying, this you can be sure. No, No one who's immoral, and he's connected that to sexual immorality. Impure, impurity, greed, greedy. Such a person is an idolater. He, he, he says that, that this person is, the essence of this, the motivation is idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? This is a word taken from the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, God says, have no other gods before me. And what God is saying is that if there is anything more important than him, anything, anything that gives you more meaning, something that you center your life on more than God, even if that thing is a good thing, it's an idol. It's, an idol. it's idolatry. And the reason why it's idolatry and the reason why God doesn't like it and what, the reason why God is, is against it is because anything you put in the place of God will fail you. And first of all, it can't handle the weight of your soul. And on its way to failing you, it will eat you alive. So anything we place, anything that we place in front of us as having where we derive our meaning from, whether we, whether we center our lives on, the things that we love more than God, we find more meaning in that thing than we find in God. We center our life more on it than we do on God. That thing is an idol. And God says it will fail you, and on its way to failing you, it will eat you alive. David Foster Wallace, the American novelist, story writer, 
had a commencement address at Kenyon College before his death. And he, and he said in this college address, basically idolatry 101. And he was giving this to graduating college students, and he said this. He was saying, watch out for what you worship. He said, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing on one level, I'm sorry, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton for every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing. This is idolatry 101. David Foster Wallace is saying, and we all know this, that the thing that we worship other than God will destroy us. It will ultimately, because it can't handle the weight of our soul. It can't. It was never created to do that. Like marriage, even marriage, no matter how good marriage is, and marriage is great, guys. Marriage is good. No matter how good it is, it, it can't handle the weight of your soul. So if you put all of your meaning and all of your worth into marriage, it will let you down, gloriously let you down. Like if you, take, if, if you were to get married and you're standing across the altar from the person you're marrying and you're going, you, and you said to them, this marriage will give me meaning and worth and value and in you I have my purpose. That other person will be going, whoa, time out. I know that, you, that I thought that was a pickup line when you said... Like, you complete me? I thought that was a pickup line. But you, you really mean that. I complete you. Yes, you complete me. Like, it, that's bound to fail. It can't handle the weight. They can't handle the weight of your expectations. If you put all of your expectations on another person, a flawed person, they will fail you. If you put all of your expectations on your job, it will fail you. All of your hope and all of your meaning into your child, it will fail you. No matter what you do, it will ultimately fail you. And it will, it will ruin you on the way. It will eat you alive on, on its way there. And guys, this happens in, in jobs, in careers. I mean, you guys know this. How many of you have been to a job interview and they've said to you, and this is, they do this, especially millennials, they do this to you. They know that this gets you every time. They sit down with you and they're like, this job here will give you, what you're doing here has meaning. What you do here has purpose. And you're like, okay, I like, okay, yeah, I want meaning. What, what, what am I doing here again? They're like, you're, you're going to be on a team that takes our video game to the Android platform. So, and you're like, wait, I don't, but you think that it's like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have, I have meaning. And you get into your job and you realize like a year in, like I don't have meaning in my work. You are trying to find something that is not there. It's not really there. You're, 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 you're not supposed to find all your meaning in, what, in a job. You're not supposed to do that. If someone told you that, that's not true. Your, the meaning that you derive from your work is the fact that you work, honestly, hard, and give, and give to those who have need. That's what we talked about last week. 
that's, that's the meaning of like, I, I work, and I work hard, and, and I give to those who have need with what I, and I use my hands to bring, to bring glory to God. So you can be someone who collects trash. You could be someone who codes, and you don't like, what, what's my meaning? What's my impact? You're working, and you do it unto God. And then with, with what you make, you give to those who have need. And you don't spend all, the, all your money on yourself. That's your meaning. You provide for your family. Provide for your church family. Meaning. But we, no, we want more. Oh, my gosh. We want so much more. We want, we want like, oh, my God. Well, I want, I, when I go to my job, I want all of the weight of all of my expectations, all of my angst to fall on my job, and it better give me all that. And it, it will eat you alive. It was never meant for that. It wasn't. Marriage wasn't meant for that. Money wasn't meant for that. None of these things were meant for that. They're called idols. Only God can handle the weight of our soul. And some of us have been really wrecked by this. In our job, in relationships, it's idolatry. And Paul is saying that people, experiences like sex, because sex can be about a person or it can be about the experience. It's, it's, it's idolatry and sin outside of marriage. Paul is saying that those that w- things that we do with stuff and money, with greed, is idolatry and sin. And it's bad. And it's really, really bad. It's sin. And God's wrath, his righteous anger, is toward that sin. God hates sin because it destroys. It destroys us, and it destroys the world he made. And it says his wrath is against all sin. Look at this again. Look at verse 5. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, here it is, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partakers or partners with them. Wow. God's Wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Can I just say that we don't like that? Can I be honest? Most of us don't like this. You might be here and listening to this, and you're like, I don't like, I don't like seeing that. I think that's, like, repressive. I think that this is the problem with Christianity, that you guys talk about God's wrath. Just focus on God's love. The Bible never says that God is wrath. The Bible says that God is love, but that God has wrath, which means... He is love, but inside of his love, there is wrath against things that destroy what he loves. If you've ever loved anything enough and something is destroying what you love, you are righteously angry. You are righteously angry. This is the wrath of God. But we don't like to hear that. We would like, we think that wrath, we, would, we, we think that wrath is incompatible with love, but it's not. And we don't even like to hear the messages of wrath. If I was to say God is a God of, God is a God of wrath, he has wrath. And he has wrath towards sin, and God hates sin. And for sinners who are unrepentant, there is wrath that God has toward an indiv- a person. And we, we just are like, wait, what? How, how can you say that? And we don't like hearing that. We don't like hearing that from the Bible. We don't like hearing that from a preacher. If it's hard for you to hear that from a preacher... What about hearing of someone from popular culture? Would that help, maybe? Kendrick Lamar came out with his fourth album a few weeks ago on Good Friday. It was no accident. 
And afterwards, now, by, by the way, edited version, edited version of this album, because Ephesians 4 and 5, just saying. <laughs> edited version. But there's so much talk when this album came out, right? There was so much talk about when this album came out and what, this, what the album means. And there's all these conspiracy theories, which I will talk for you for hours about the conspiracy theories around this album. It's so good. But someone wrote a think piece comparing um, how Chance the Rapper and Kendrick Lamar talk to God in different ways through their music. This is a very fascinating think piece. And the, the, the writer, and he was writing for DJ, uh, a website called DJ Booth, um, he, he was saying that the way that Chance approaches God or talks about God is through maybe the best song to understand his, his like framework is blessings. Praises go up, blessings come down. Like, we're, are you ready for your blessings? Like, we're ready. Are, are you, like, positioned for God to bless you? Because God's blessings are right around the corner. And it's like this, like, very happy, lighthearted, God is good and God's going to bless you, okay? So you got, but you got Kendrick. And the, the title of his album is called Damn, by the way. And it's, and it really, it, and, he, and the writer says, it threads in the messages of the fear of God. Here are two, two of the biggest cultural influencers talking about God right now. And one is talking about God as like God of blessing, and one is talking about God as like God of anger. You fear God. And after the piece came out, Kendrick Lamar has been very silent after the release of his album. He actually wrote an email to the author of this writer. And he wrote an email, and he said, he said this. He said, you're actually spot on. He said, I didn't think anyone would catch it. And this is what he said. This is his email that he wrote. He said, after being heavily in my studies these past few years, I finally figured out why I left those services feeling spiritually unsatisfied as a child. He was talking about how he used to go to church as a child, and the preacher would talk about how our, the, the blessings of God are right around the corner. God's going to give you everything you want, but God is good, that sort of thing. And he always left feeling uneasy. He says, I, I think I discovered why. I discovered more truth, but simple truth. Our God is a loving God, yes. He is a merciful God, yes. But even more so, God is a God of discipline obedience, a jealous God. And for every conscious choice of sin, there will be, will be corrected through his discipline. It will be corrected. Hence the concept, the wages of sin is death. He's quoting Romans. It shall be corrected, he writes. What is Kendrick saying? He's saying this. Go study for yourself. If you study for yourself, you will find this. God is holy. God hates sin. All sin will be corrected by God. The small injustices that you commit towards another person, the small injustice that we commit at work, the small injustice that we commit in this church will be corrected. The massive, on a world stage injustices will be corrected by God because God is a God of justice, of truth, of holiness. He is God. He's holy. He hates sin. You don't mess around with God. You don't. Outside of Christ, disobedient people are under the wrath of God. Those that are inside Christ, those that, are, that have, been, have been brought under the blood of Christ, when we are disobedient, you are under the discipline of God, Hebrews says. God will discipline us as children. Like not like the, the spoiled way our parents, quote unquote, put us on timeout. God will discipline us. He will. If you are outside of Christ and you're in sin, you are under the wrath of God. God doesn't mess around. He loves 
the world and us so much that when we are destroying it, his righteous indignation is toward sin. And this is what Kendrick is trying to get across in his album, he said. I wanted you to get it. I wanted you to get that we're to fear God. I wanted you to get this message, this heavy message, that God is a God of discipline, God is a God of obedience, God is jealous. I wanted people to get that. God is love. God is not wrath, by the way. God is love. But God has wrath. And it's inside of his love. Because anyone who has loved something knows how mad you get when that something harms what you love. And God's wrath is not God losing his temper. Don't think of it like that. That's not. It's judicial condemnation upon sin. Because sin incurs guilt. So when we sin, we're not just messing up. You're actually guilty. And your sin deserves punishment. Paul says right in the middle of this argument, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. What he's saying there, he's like, don't let people lie to you. God has wrath. God hates sin. Don't let people deceive you with empty words about, no, God doesn't have wrath. God doesn't, doesn't hate sin. Like, don't, that, those are empty words. Your sin and my sin messes up God's good world. We mess up people who in turn mess up more people. And it keeps going and going and going. And the power of sin even gets darker. Look at verse 8. For you were once darkness. Paul says that you don't just do bad things. When you're outside of Christ, you are dark. You don't just do bad things. You're actually dark in your inmost being. That's the power of sin in our life. Not only just makes us like darkness, we actually become dark. You were once darkness. But the turn. The turn in in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. See, you were once not just in darkness, but you were actually darkness. But now you're not just in light. You are actually light. And so therefore, he says, live as children of the light. You were once darkness, but now you are light. Live as children of the light. You were brought into the light because of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross for you and for me. It's been said that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God takes our place. Jesus incurs the, the, the punishment of our sin, the separation that is due from our sin. The punishment. He takes it all on the cross. And then we get to, to, to go into, into his place of blessing. Go to his place of like being right before God. Being made right with God. Having peace with God. Being one with God. We get all of the blessings of Christ because he took all of our curse. And it's, and it's, it, it, it's judicial. It's righteous. Jesus did that for us. This is why the cross of Christ was so agonizing. This is why Jesus, when he was going to the cross, said, Dad, is there any other way to do this? And the Father said, this is the way. And Jesus, out of obedience to the Father, says, okay, I'll go to the cross. Jesus, because he loved us, there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus performs both what perfect love is to common man and what perfect obedience is like to God. He does both. He fulfills the greatest commandment, by the way. Love God and love others. He's the only one who's ever done that. Jesus. And what we get to do is we get to step in the place of his reward. 
We step in the place of his righteousness. We step in the place of his holiness. We become that. And so do you see now why Jesus is like, you are light. This is what I've done with you. I, with my own blood, out of obedience to the Father, purchased your, redeemed you from hell, redeemed your life. Therefore, live as children of light. Because I did this for you. Is there any other response? Is there any other response other than that that's fitting? What do you do with that? Like someone like, I've given my life for you. Everything, I went to the, I, 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 I bore the punishment of your sin. And you're like, thank you, I will send you a Christmas card every year. That is not, that's not fitting. Nothing less than I will give you my life is fitting. Therefore, live as children of light. This is, what, this is why there's the indicative and the imperative. This is what Christ has done. Therefore, this is how we're to live. How are we to live? As light. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, look at, look at verse 10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Find out. This is maybe a really good thing to think about, to test out. I, the, over the last um, few couple months, I've been sitting, seeing an executive coach. And it just seems really weird to say that. Um, I don't know why it does. It just does. It, feels, it seems weird. Um, and I, he, th- this executive coach helps me think through a lot of different things and help, just helps a ton. But one of the things that I, that I really appreciate about this, this coach in my life in particular is that when I'm faced with a difficult decision, it comes down to this. And he, and he like squares me up and does a good job of like doing this gently, but squares me up and says, what will honor God? What decision will honor God? Not make people happy. Not make you happy. That's not the question. What decision honors God? This is what Paul is saying. Find out what pleases the Lord. This is what we're now we're called to do as, as followers of, of Christ. We're to live our lives that way. We, we, maybe think about that right now in your decision. Maybe you're, you're facing a very difficult decision. What decision will please the Lord? Because your life is lived to please the Lord. What decision will please the Lord? This means that the Christian ethic is largely an ethic of discernment. We are to discern what pleases the Lord right now. What pleases the Lord? And so let me ask you these questions as we close. Does your sexuality please God right now? Is what you're doing with your body sexually, with your mind sexually, is that pleasing to God? I don't want you to argue like in your own mind. Justify it. Just ask that question and let it sit there. Ask yourself, is the way I'm living sexually pleasing to God? If conviction starts to set in, here's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction drives you to God. Condemnation drives you away from God. Okay? So if you feel like the answer to that question is driving you further away from God, like I just want to run right now. just want to get up and go and leave. I don't want to be here right now. That's condemnation. That's not from God. That's from, that's from the evil one. The Spirit of God would want to convict you to draw you into God with repentance. So you just ask yourself, does your sexuality please God? Does your desires please God? Are you greedy for things that you should not be greedy for? Are you desiring things that God doesn't want for you? Are you actually, is your desire to please God? Again, sit with that. Is it pleasing to God, your desires? Conviction will draw you closer and closer to God. 
And so I want to tonight invite us to repent. I want to invite us to remember we all need this. All of us need. Church, the beautiful thing about coming to church on a weekly rhythm is that every single week we remember Jesus' death through communion. We remember that the cross has said the final word of who we are. We are broken sinners, but we have been loved by God and we've been made new. And so we take in the broken body and the blood of Christ. We, we symbolically, symbolically take this into our lives and we ask Christ to forgive us. Every week we're doing this. And so let's, let's, let's do that again. Let's repent. But let's also remember. Some of us, you know, we, we saw, maybe we saw that baptism picture and we need to remember that we were baptized. We, just, we, need to, we need to remember that day that we went under the waters of baptism and all our sins were washed away and we were clean. And so I want to invite you not only to repent but to remember. And so what we have next to the communion stations is a, uh, a bowl of water. And there is a, a, a historic tradition in the church where you remember your baptism by dipping your finger in water and touching your forehead with it or crossing yourself. To remember that I was once, to, to think back and go, I was baptized and this is who I am now. I'm, I'm new in Christ. The blood of Christ covers me. I've been washed. I've been clean. I belong to Christ. I'm new. I need to remember that. And this is what we need tonight. We need these like physical, we need to move with our body to go, God, I, 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 I need, I need forgiveness. I need wholeness. And church, I know this is like so heavy. I know, I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. Um, this is, this is heavy. I know it is. But this, I want you to know this is who we are. This is who we are. And because of who we are, we should be living in a certain way out of a response of what Christ has done. But I want to close with this. 1 John 1.9. I want you to know this. I want you to be assured of this. The benediction today is an assurance that this has happened. But let me read this to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. He's faithful, guys. Not only is he faithful, it's only, it's only just that God would forgive us because the, on the cross, God has poured out his wrath on Jesus. There's no more wrath left for those that are in Christ. It's, it would not be just for God to pour his wrath on Christ and then pour his wrath on you. It's not just. He's faithful to do it and is just. He's just to do it. And so today when we confess, if this is your first time confessing Christ, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're purified of your sins. Let's pray. Lord, we need this assurance today. I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us. I don't want, I don't want to get this church so beat down by the weight of this teaching that we don't know the great indicatives that cause us to live this way. The fact that we are beloved, the fact that we're redeemed, that we're saved, like Lord, let this teaching not be a whip to beat the, the, the church. That's just not what this is. But may it call us higher to go, and this is who we are in Christ, and this is how we will live, and we will repent of our sin, and we will confess our sin, and we, and we will say together, we don't even want a hint of it. God, I say that I don't want a hint of sexual immorality in my mind or in my heart. Not a hint. I don't want a hint of, uh, of, uh, of sexual impurity. I don't want a hint of greed. 
we all struggle in various ways, God. We all have what it seems to be different crosses to bear in these areas. But would you help us, God? And as we confess sin now, would you forgive us? In Christ's name, amen.